this is Missy Hyatt, The Walking Riot, and I say that you need to save with Conrad. Jim Ross told me, you need to go with Conrad, he'll save you money. And he did. You guys helped me out great. And when I refinanced it and paid off everything, I think my payment was only $8 more a month. I probably saved at least over $30,000. They make everything so easy for you. Go to Save with Conrad if you want to refi your mortgage or anything with your mortgage. Just go to Save with Conrad. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer, the hardcore legend himself, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I know it's it sounds unusual. I'm going to put my glasses on because if I look at the image without the glasses, it's fuzzy, and it, I think it could give me a headache. So uh, I'm going to wear the glasses and no teeth since we are commemorating that special night where I lost those bad boys, at least the bottom ones. I can't believe this is real. We are right upon the 25th anniversary of King of the Ring 1998, one of the most famous or maybe infamous dates in wrestling history. <laughs> I mean, when we first talked about doing this podcast, I knew like, well, this is the story everybody wants to hear about. And we decided, hey, let's wait until the 25th anniversary. And now here we are. Yeah. Does it feel like it's been 25 years to you? Yeah, man, in some ways it feels like the blink of an eye, you know? Like I remember everything except for 42 seconds that I don't remember, <laughs> and I never will. Uh, but I, uh, it's funny because I had to piece back a lot of it, but now it feels like it, you know, like it happened in the blink of an eye. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, older and grayer, uh, walking a little more slowly, but really proud of that match and, uh, uh, you know, and the uh, legacy that it's left behind. Well, let's talk about how we got there, you know, because 1998 has been quite a year for you. I mean, you wrote in Have a Nice Day that your match with Steve Austin was the most fun of a match you'd ever had to watch. Like, you're coming oh, off yeah. a real high as dude love now with back to back pay per views. And, and now we're seemingly going to be shifting gears, you know. So, just to remind everybody, the April pay-per-view and the May pay-per-view, you're in the main events working with Steve as Dude Love. And now here at King of the Ring 98, we're going to be Mankind. Are you feeling the pressure and the back and forth with these different characters? And I got to stand out or talk to me about that. Well, you know what? Um, uh, first of all, I want to bring up the uh, WWE YouTube uh, kind of a tribute video that yes. uh, Undertaker and I did. And I only watched the first five minutes because I liked it so much that I wanted to share it with my son, Mickey, who's, uh, who's uh, up here in the mountains with me. And plus, he, can, he knows how to get it on the big screen, you know, so I like to watch it on the big screen. But it really felt so special to me. It really, uh, I mean, it just had a really cool feeling to it of Undertaker and I sitting down and watching that match together. And one of the first things I said in that uh, video is one of the things I covered in the 20 years of hell, especially did five years ago, was that I think because I'd gone from being, you know, I, in 
pretty rapid order. I'd gone from being mankind to dude to cactus to all three to <laughs> corporate dude. And now I was uh, mankind. And it just did not feel like the, it just felt like it was maybe too much for the audience. So going into that, I described it as being like a symphony of silence when I entered. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we turned that feeling around. It did uh, take on a big match feel very quickly. But when I came out, my reaction, my feeling was, oh, man, I don't belong in this match, a match of this magnitude. We've overplayed our hand. And so, um, yeah, I was uh, I was I was nervous and I was nervous as anything about trying to live up what to what Undertaker and Sean had done just, I guess, eight months earlier. Someone do the math. October. That's that's eight months, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? I'm for it. We're going to do it with our. Yeah, eight months. I nailed it. OK. <laughs> uh, and I really I was feeling the pressure. And also, I was scared to death of, you know, what I had hoped to accomplish. And then that feeling of fear just got exacerbated about tenfold when I got up there on top of that structure. So I was I was really nervous about trying to live up to what Sean and uh, Undertaker had done and uh, nervous about whether I could uh, survive what I had uh, hoped to, uh, <laughs> you know, hope to accomplish. I want to ask you because you wrote in your book that originally you were scheduled to work against Steve Austin at King of the Ring in a Hell in a Cell match. When are you told that there was a, a change in plans and, and how did you take that? Did you see that as a bad thing? Well, first of all, I didn't feel like the audience was clam. I did not feel the audience was clamoring for a third Foley Austin match. Um, and also when Vince Russo laid it out for me, it was going to have elements of like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome where there'd be like bungees that you could like hop on and spring up towards the top of the, the cell structure. And uh, this is where my limited genetic hand might limit me from taking advantage of that in a way, I gotta fix that eyebrow, in a way that better athletes might be able to. Uh, so, I just, I, you know, my feeling was, man, Undertaker and I had such a great rivalry in 96, but we don't have a feud. It's hard to ignite something that quickly that people, I think we'd wrestled uh, seven pay-per-view matches or six or seven and at least 10 television matches. And I just thought, how do we, how do we get people excited about something uh, that they've seen a bunch of times. So, and then again, you know, just not to, not to over, to overstate the pressure I felt about living up to what he and Sean did, but that was a major, that was major, you know, that was really a, ma a major thought in my head. Of course, in the middle of all this, we've, we've got Kane who's just recently debuted and, and now we're, we're going to figure him in, uh, in this whole storyline with the undertaker, but the big pivot, I guess, starts when Russo gives you a call and says that you and Austin are off and, and you're, and it's not going to be happening in the cell. And then eventually you find out you're going to be working with the undertaker. And you wrote in your book that you knew he was hurt and you thought, quote unquote, I suck in a cage. <laughs> I mean, so you immediately start thinking about, okay, how do I turn this negative into a positive or how do I adapt? And Man, I can't imagine what you were thinking at the time. Did your brain immediately go to what wound up happening or? 
What's no, no. I, first of all, I'm probably be a little harsh on myself when I say I suck. I was average, which meant that in the old day, you know, the old days, all you needed to do was, you know, throw the the heel into the cell, into the the mesh, and rake his face in there. And as long as there was a little blood, people were genuinely happy. Like uh, looking back at the snooker cage match before the big dive, that you know created so many great memories, you know, for myself included, that was kind of an average cage match. It was kind of a short cage match. There'd been other great cage matches. Um, I mean, there've been so many great cage matches, but they almost all peaked with, uh, uh, with the crescendo of heel going into the mesh, baby face raking his face into the mesh. There's some blood and everyone goes home happy. So uh, it wasn't until I sat down with uh, Terry Funk, I think we were wrestling in Hartford. So I don't know if a lot of people know this, but just because the WWE offices are in Stanford doesn't mean you spend a lot of time there. You know, you might get called in, you know, to do, uh, you know, maybe for a meeting, with, you know, with Vince every couple of years. Now, I eventually had more meetings with Vince only because I was a Long Island guy. And I, you know, especially after I retired for good the first time, uh, and I would come out, I'd have an idea, and uh, I would be in his office pitching it the next day. But that's because I was a local, you know, that was an hour and a half drive for me. I was one of like three WWE wrestlers who didn't live in Florida, I think. So uh, I was, uh, I could actually see, uh, <laughs> from Vince's office, I could see the smokestacks in Port Jefferson, which is only two miles from where the house where I grew up. Uh, so that was my proximity to the office. I think I'm getting off on a little tangent here about how close I was to Stanford. But in this case, uh, we were wrestling in, in um, Hartford, I believe. So Terry and I stopped by WWE offices uh, because Vince has that top of the line uh, workout facility. And then I asked if I could watch that cell match with The Undertaker and Sean. And... Uh, Man, it was even better than I remembered it. And I remembered it as being extraordinary. And I looked at Terry and I said, what am I going to do? And Terry, you know, is one of the great minds in the business. And usually he would have ideas. But in this case, he said, Cactus, I have no idea. And then he started laughing. He's got that, you know, that great, unique laugh. He was like, you know what you ought to do? You ought to start the match up on top of the cell. And he thought, wouldn't it be great if I was thrown off and, uh, and then climbed back up again? And he was laughing. Ha, ha, ha. And I said, I think I can do that. And from that moment on, I kind of became obsessed with the idea of starting a match in a way that nobody had ever started a match and doing something that nobody could have called, uh, which was, you know the throw. I'll never say the toss because that means something different in certain parts of the world. And nobody wants to think of me and the undertaker that way. Um, but, uh, I just, I really became obsessed and tried to, uh, talk undertaker into it on a daily basis for about 10 days. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, you're trying to convince Terry, I think I can do it. I mean, I, I almost feel like he was saying it sort of tongue in cheek. Yeah, he was. Nobody... And this is Terry who's come up with some far out ideas on his own. Uh, I mean, he's the guy that, you know, first time I got to IWA Japan, he was like, Cactus, we're going to turn you into a fireman. 
And then he like started a fire in my bathroom that almost ignited the place, you know, and in Japan, you, you have these little tiny rooms that are only a little bit bigger than the bed. I mean, that's no exaggeration unless you get into the real, you know, luxury hotels. But, uh, you know, they're kind of spaces at a premium, especially in Tokyo. So uh, we went into the bathroom and he's teaching me how to, <laughs> to light up the branding iron or something. And it caught fire. And I was thinking in a way that neither one of us expected. I was like, I don't feel comfortable with this, you know, and I never did feel comfortable with fire as and no one should. Um, and and we ended up, you know, being sued <laughs> in, later on, uh, later, uh, a year later in uh, because of an ECW fire incident. But Terry had some far out ideas, but this was tongue in cheek. It was him, I think, trying to allevi alleviate the tension that I felt with like coming up with the most ridiculous scenario possible. But once I said, I think I could do that, I, I really visualized it happening. What I did not visualize was how, and I won't drop an F-bomb here, but I'm thinking it, it was really freaking high, much higher. <laughs> it, 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 I probably mentioned this before on the show, but when I read Jericho's first book, which is a great book, even though it never hit uh, number one, there's no shame in that, even though I did it twice, but uh, it was a great book. And uh, he said at one point that he was thinking of doing something off the top of the cell. And he said, but when I went up there, the people below look, he went up there earlier in the afternoon, which I did not do. Because if I had gone up there earlier in the afternoon, Conrad, we wouldn't be having this 25th anniversary talk about a match no one would remember. And as soon as I read that, what Jericho said, I was like, that's exactly what they looked like. They looked like ants. So that when I got up there, I thought, oh, no, there's no bleep. I was cursing in my mind. <laughs> you know? I really was. I couldn't believe it. And I went from thinking I could do it and being, you know, being worried about it to being absolutely terrified. So when The Undertaker's music played, uh, the whole time he was coming out, I was trying to think, how <laughs> how can I gracefully climb down this structure without destroying my career right by god if i could have thought of how to do it i would have done it but i couldn't so i didn't and i just resolved and the one thing i had going for me was that the cage is the cell was so much harder to climb than i imagined i'm not gifted and i'm bottom heavy i so i've said before i maxed out as an athlete in sixth grade gym class with four pull-ups previous i'd done zero but that was before i you know i got banged up, beaten up, and really bottom heavy. So by the time I got to the top of the cell, uh, two of my fingers were just about numb and they stayed that way for about 10 days. And so that was the only thing distracting me from absolute sheer and total terror being up on top of that structure. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine that this wasn't even the original plan. I mean, this is supposed to be you and Austin. How did we get to you and Taker? Well, let's remind everybody. We had a match with Taker and Kane to end and main event Monday Night Raw. You're going to interfere as mankind. Give Kane the win over Taker. So now Kane is the number one contender. He's going to be wrestling Steve Austin. And, of course, Undertaker, he doesn't like that you took his spot from him. So you guys are now in the hell in a cell. The next night is a tape draw in Rockford, Illinois. You're going to 
help uh, Kane attack Austin after Kane pops up out of Taker's casket. And then you and Kane beat him down with no Undertaker save. Uh, somewhere in here is when you do that sit down in, in Stanford and, and watch the original Hell in a Cell with Terry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think your next match is at Madison Square Garden, and you and Kane are going to team up to take on Undertaker and Austin in the main event. It's a sellout, 19,506 fans there. Wait, wait. Are you telling me that we sold that son of a B out? I would say the real word, but my mom's watching me. She's here in the room. So <laughs> they were hanging from the rafters. Ricky Morton. Oh, told brother, me. you never seen so many people. Oh, That's yeah. Ricky Morton for you. By the way, this is the largest gate ever in the United States for the WWF for a non-pay-per-view event. And All it's right. you and Kane yeah. taking on Undertaker and Austin. Uh, Austin's going to pin you after the stunner for the win. And then you're on the road from there. I mean, think about this, man. You're at Stanford. And then Madison Square Garden in New York. And now we're going to Minnesota, just another day at the office. And then what do you know? Let's zigzag down to New Mexico and Dallas. You're in the main event working with Austin. Are these the best house show payoffs you've ever received in your career at this point? Yo, yeah. I But I think they would get better a year later. Right. I was, you know, I mean... <laughs> I remember I was I would have some spirited debates with Jr. over my payoffs, especially when things got hot, you know, hot, meaning, you know, the company got really hot and he woke cactus, you know, you weren't in the main event. I said, like, Jr. these shows are selling out before we even announced the card. This is talking about ninety nine. Um, I said the main event is inconsequential. You know, it's just it's the magnitude of the promotion and the you know like those five or six guys on top with austin and rock you know well there's you know, austin rock uh uh taker hunter me kane I, I apologize to anyone else if i left anyone else but uh and then there you know an amazing supporting cast too with just you know everything seen, not everything hit but a lot of things creatively were hitting their target uh, so things did go up in 99, um, but 90, yeah, 98. Yeah. They just can steadily got better, you know, so that, uh, the house show payoffs, believe me, even the main event payoffs were nothing to brag about in 96, but I didn't know any better. So I didn't question any of them. Uh, but by, yeah, by 98, they're, they're, they're adding up and it's, it's turning into a really good year. Let's talk about, uh, how you guys are forming a tag team. There's even going to be a 10 team Royal rumble. And, uh, this is to determine the number one contenders for the tag team titles and you and Kane are going to win. And because Kane of course is uh, being managed by Paul Barrett, you're working with Paul again. Were you excited to be working with Paul again? Oh yeah. Yeah. I could, yeah. I forgot there was an absence there of uh, a year or so, you know, where he really was closely aligned with Kane, but I always, I always love that, uh, chemistry with, uh, with Paul Bearer and I thought that Kane and I were like really an uh, underrated tag team. I thought uh, the two characters played off each other pretty well. And one of the, my, uh, when, when Kane, uh, when he was distraught over the result of the paternity tag, I, I can't remember the exact, uh, details, but I single-handedly restrained Kane when he was, and I thought I, I did that, you know, all respect to a DJ Khaled, but I did that. I restrained Kane 
single-handedly, which may have, you know, strained credibility even more than me defeating The Rock. As my son Huey points out, that's the least realistic thing to ever happen in pro wrestling, <laughs> given the current states of our physical conditioning. Anyway, let's get back to the, 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 the cell. So, yeah, let's talk about the Hell in a Cell, because you actually not only win the number one contendership, you and Kane, but then you're going to challenge the Undertaker and Stone Cold to a Hell in a Cell match, and it's almost like a forgotten Hell in a Cell. You're yeah. doing double duty here on Monday Night <laughs> Raw. Um, now that you're seeing this cage again in person, does that get the creative juices flowing even more? I can't remember. Honestly, I do <laughs> because... I hosted the, the, the Hell in a Cell uh, DVD for WWE. And when I got there that day, I had completely forgotten that there'd even been that match. Like you said, it's so overlooked. And I think he was pretty brief. And I think it ended up with Austin on top of the cell. I can't remember, but I don't think yeah. I was up there uh, because Austin's like I, up there fighting Kane. Yeah. 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 So those yeah. two, because like I said, if I'd been up there, prior to june 28th 1998 yeah we're not having this conversation 25 years later hey uh, conrad for the people who are watching on video do you think we need to address the foley hair the transition period man i'm so glad you mentioned it because you're looking a little bit like uh a ch -ch chia pet today Tell everybody well, you know what i've got the thick hair and this is the awkward transition process. I'm going to give the long hair thing one more try. Um, I had it long for almost 30 years with a couple of uh, short haircuts in the mix uh, for short periods of time. And then when I tried to regrow it, what happened was I had the long hair when I was uh, GM in 2016, but because of my uh, Santa duties, what I would do is I would wear a wig. I'd have the real beard bleached and I would wear a wig, but trying to, you know, keep that, the, the magic alive, I would uh, bleach the front of my hair and the back of my hair so that if any child were to see uh, underneath the wig, it wouldn't be dark hair they'd see. It would be blonde hair. They'd pull it up and have it up there in a net. Um, and I did, uh, you know, probably a, a big mistake for a guy with no experience whatsoever uh, with hair. <laughs> I started trying to cut the back of my hair, uh, just the just the bleach spots. I think the last time I given a haircut was when Gary Young and I trimmed Eric Embry's hair. <laughs> Eric was he had been a bleach blonde heel uh, his whole career, and now he was a hot baby face, and so he was going back with natural hair. And we were instructed, yeah, we are going to beat up Eric and we're going to cut his hair, but only the blonde. <laughs> I think you can even hear on the old world-class tape, you can hear Eric as he's taking this pummeling and Gary Young and I are doing the number on him. He's like, just, just the blonde, just the blonde. Um, so that was my only prior haircutting experience. And the more I trimmed away, the worse it looked. So I did show up for one week with like a medium haircut that looked awful. And then the next week I showed up in New Orleans. I got into town a couple weeks early. I just, just, just said, shave it off. And when I tried to grow it back, I found myself saying these words uh, on a daily basis. And the words were, it's not a perm because the hair, it was just so curly. And, uh, and it was just standing straight up like a heat miser type thing. 
And then I eventually said, this is mother nature's way of telling me those long hair days are over. But I'm going to try it one more time. I'm going to give it the old college try, Conrad, and we'll see what happens. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I I'm might looking have forward to, to it. Ah, yeah. I, I mean, the other option is to use products, but that's really not in my nature. So I'm just going to see how the natural look goes for, for a couple months. Let's talk about uh, something that I can't believe is real, but it was in the Observer, and I've been waiting to ask you about it. Billy Graham's June 12th combination religious revival show and pro wrestling event in Beaumont, Texas, headlined by Funk and Cactus Jack in a death match, was canceled due to a weak advance. I want to remind everybody, we're not saying this happened in 95 or 91 or 87. This is 1998. Yeah, Foley is on the top of his game. He is a WWE contracted wrestler and he once upon a time was scheduled or booked. What in the world? What do you remember of this? I, I do. I didn't know that. I maybe I blocked that out of my mind. Uh, look, here's my take. I've been a part of enough successes to know that failures are not all my fault. And I've been a part of enough failures to know that successes are not all my doing. So I have no idea. You know, it takes a lot to, uh, promote a really good show and uh i, I don't know the specifics but uh, yeah it was it was canceled maybe it was the whole religious revival slash death match <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean like how does that go together that's crazy <laughs> i don't i don't know and i get you know at this point we just lost billy graham about a month ago just uh what a magnificent just i don't know if there's been a more emulated character as far as influence you know influencing the influencers because he influenced hogan he influenced jesse i think flair to some extent and a number of other people uh so you know just a just an amazing entertainer billy superstar graham uh with promos <laughs> kale so kale or Chale, kale sonin was known for his great uh promos in ufc and some of them were directly like yeah. verbatim Billy Graham things. So his influence extended beyond pro wrestling into UFC. So I don't know what happened, but I'll I'll take uh, Dave's word that the advance was weak. But hey, Conrad, I just sold out the garden, so I'm not taking the blame for that one. Oh no, of course yeah. not. I just think yeah. the idea of thinking, hey, let's do a death match at a Christian revival is is wow okay never thought those would touch what a goodness gracious um let's talk a little bit about a tape draw that's going to happen in austin texas this is the show with i guess a somewhat notorious angle where the undertaker is going to attack paul bear at his house and you have to calm kane down in the locker room when he sees oh, that's him. why that's why he was distraught okay it wasn't the paternity test it was that he'd been okay gotcha gotcha it feels like you know this your involvement is almost a backdrop for their storyline at this point. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I was glad. I mean, I'm just glad to be in the mix. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I always saw myself as like the pulling guard opening up holes for the, for the star running back. So I was completely fine. There I am. Look how distraught he is. So I'm not physically restraining him there, but you know, I can, if I need to. Oh, of course you can. <laughs> there, there, there. Look, one man physically restraining Kane, and that was me. Um, 
there's a lot of injuries in this era too. We talked about how Taker's been hurt. Now Steve Austin has a staff infection. You get a main event out of him in Houston before he's got to come off the road again. And, you know, I know that the old Vince McMahonism is get the match in the ring, but in this era, it does feel like more and more guys would say, ah, we'll be fine. Just walk it off. Uh, but yeah. staff infection, man, that's not something you can play around with, right? No joke. Yeah. I wrote in my book about uh, wrestling the undertaker and Puerto Rico. And this is just a week or so after our uh, SummerSlam match. And, uh, part of the reason I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, fluorescent light tubes is because we used them in that match and because of it undertaker developed a staph infection because those things get lodged in you know like these little particles get lodged under your skin and a much not a much lesser man but anyone other than the undertaker probably wouldn't have even been in that match because he did look like a dead man and i remember a doctor coming in and squeezing his elbow and pus literally shot eight feet, eight to 10. I didn't have my tape measure with me and splattered against the wall. I'd never seen something like that. And he went out there and wrestled. And I think we still had a pretty good match, which is really a tribute to him. And here he is with the broken foot taking part in what he knows is going to be a difficult match. And he knows he's got to try to live up to what he and Sean did as well. Just to sort of give some context to what we're talking about here, boys and girls, your top guy is stone cold, Steve Austin. He he's the champ. He's the guy steering the ship. He's out with a staff infection. Yeah. We're getting towards SummerSlam, which is going to be him against the undertaker. So he's obviously the other side of the, the, the main event for the big pay-per-view a couple of months away. He too hurt. And you guys are going to pull him off the road. And even how shows like in Oklahoma city and Tulsa, because you're missing so many of your top guys due to injury, the shows are postponed, not due to poor ticket sales, just because, Hey, these guys are hurt. So as a result, you wind up getting like eight days between Houston and this Pittsburgh show, um, because all the shows are canceled. And so that has to add to your pressure, right? Of thinking, man, if, if Steve's hurt. And, and Undertaker's hurt. We're going to have to do something special, something spectacular. Are you just in your head on the sidelines for these eight days, just manifesting this? A little bit, but I was also at Santa's Village in New Hampshire. <laughs> I love you for that. <laughs> the day, the day before. One of the great mysteries of this match is that the, the figuring out why i thought it'd be a good idea to spend uh, that's a scratch not a pick by the way i would never do that on your show conrad uh, all right i might but i didn't um is why i thought it'd be a good idea to spend the day before the biggest match of my career at santa's village and it was this uh, real juxtaposition because noelle was riding her first roller coaster rudy's rapid transit and had like a 20-foot incline you know and we get up to the top of the incline and she kissed me on the cheek and i said honey what was that for and she said because you're a good man and about 30 hours later i was getting thrown off <laughs> as steep of an incline <laughs> as i was up on um, the top of that roller coaster and after all these years i'm like why i so i drove i drove back it's about two and a half hour ride through almost three hours to the boston logan airport 
my family flew back to uh, Pensacola where we were living in uh, Navarre, Florida at the time. And then I flew to Pittsburgh for the, you know, my date with destiny. And I'm like, what? I just, I can't figure out why I thought that'd be a good idea. But the only thing I can think is that when I found out the shows were canceled, I'm like, we're going to the mountains, brother. And so we did. Well, I'm glad you did. Uh, you wrote in your book that, you know, Taker was trying to talk you out of this. And he said something yeah. like, why are you so intent on killing yourself up there? And you replied, because I'm afraid this match is going to stink. You can't walk. And let's face it. I don't have any heat. We've got a heck of a legacy to live up to, and I don't want this match to ruin it. If we can start it out hot enough, we can make people think we had a hell of a match, even if we didn't. Yeah. I guess Taker eventually says, I'll think about it. That's what he said. Yeah, that's what he said. So I did, I'd completely forgotten this, but even when I was down the road doing the 20 years of hell tour, I didn't, I forgotten about those eight days off. So I thought we had like three days off and that he said, I'll think about it three days ahead of time. I know that was the last thing he said, you know, when I saw him and then I showed up in Pittsburgh and uh, Vince was asking me if I thought the big, actually the big bump was supposed to be the choke slam. I, I, there was no thought I had not talked about going on, being thrown off the top of it. The visual I was looking for. Now you see that, you know, when Undertaker chokeslammed me, ting. I mean, all I remember was a ting sound. And the next yeah. thing I know is I'm waking up. I realize I've got a couple teeth missing and there's a pair of shoes in the ring. And I had no idea how they got there. I didn't realize that, you know, in an attempt to buy me time, because that was one of the great ironies to me of, of wrestling was that everyone picks on it. And not everyone, but the non-fans for being phony and show business and fake. But uh, it's like, Hey man, does your sport continue when one of the participants is no longer conscious? Because mine does. At least it did in '98. Luckily, that's not the case now because we've learned a lot. Uh, but I just remember that ting sound. Uh, and so the idea was that Undertaker was going to. This is the big visual I was looking for. Undertaker is going to choke slam me, and a corner of that cell of that panel is going to give way and that he's eventually going to stuff me down like head first so the visual i thought is i'm going to be upside down like flailing my arms around and that eventually he'll let go of my my knees you know where he'd be kind of holding me and then i would just have to take my own bump into the ring kind of you know just doing a semi turn and and you know be a big hype but i thought i could do that and it was only during the course of the day that I said, hey, and how about you throw me off the top of that thing, going back to what Terry Funk said. And I just said it so casually to, to Taker and Vince that I tried to downplay it as being a big deal. And Vince was like, I don't know if I like that, Nick. I said, well, like if I told you I was gonna drop an elbow and Taker was going to move, you'd let me do that, right? So I'm, I'm going with like, <laughs> like a, kind of a positive, I don't know if positive reinforcement is the right uh, term for it, but I'm laying it out as if it's not a big deal when it clearly was. And he was like, oh, I guess so. I said, it'd be the same bump, which it absolutely was not. Uh, and so I kind of threw that into the mix. This, at least this is my recollection of it, the day of. Because up until then, the visual I was looking for was that tearing of the 
panel of the cell. So the last thing I said to the undertaker, I think it's even as my music is playing, I look over, I go, you might have chokeslammed me four or five times before that mesh starts to give. And this is before we realize that the, the new cell uh, has been reinforced with twist ties, zip ties. <laughs> and so even that photo you showed of me up there by myself, you can see this mesh sagging and it's actually giving way with Undertaker. Yeah, look at it. It's like giving way. And there's a photo, another photo where it's like one of our feet is clearly going through it. Uh, yeah, look at that. Look how far below it is. And we can actually hear these little things going, <laughs> just shooting off the, uh, uh, the cell. And I remember thinking like, I don't recall there being twist ties in that match with The Undertaker and Sean. At first I thought, oh, look, I'm like 80 pounds, you know, 70, 80 pounds heavier than Sean. But that shouldn't be enough for this thing to be given way. And there's right. this moment where I attempt to, uh, uh, Mom, you might want to put the earmuffs on. Your son's going to curse, okay? Uh, I try attempt to uh, suplex The Undertaker on top of the cell. And, brother, he shot that shit down in a hurry. Just cut me off. And then the next thing I know, you know, I'm taking flight. He just said, are you ready? I said, yep. And uh, off we went. That's it? Are you ready? And here you go? Here I go. Grab me by the collar and the waistband of my uh, cool brown tights, and off I went. Listen, I, I got to ask, you know, I've asked this question to uh, to Bruce before. Like, I know this isn't a bump you can practice. I know this right. isn't a spot that we can really plan for. We just discuss it, and then we do it, and that's that. But, like, is there even a discussion or consideration of we should remove the monitors from the table? No, no, but that would give it away. And I, I you know, to this day, uh, JR says he didn't know, and I have to take him at his word. So I think the only people who know for sure, like, I don't know, Carlos didn't know, like, I, you know, he got out of there, like in the nick of time. Uh, uh, Hugo, Hugo, nearly Hugo, Hugo loved the, the bumps, you know, so he dove Carlos Cabrera and Hugo, uh, barely got out of harm's way. So I don't believe they knew. Uh, and so I, I think if you give, you take the mon it's one thing for someone to take the monitors off when they're intentionally about to power bomb somebody on there. Right. It's another thing to tip your hat by not having them there. So looking back on it, you know, I mean, I'm lucky I didn't land on the monitors. You know, yeah. it did a quite a bit of damage. I can't tell you for sure which bump caused uh, the most damage. I think it was actually the second one. Uh, but my initial thought when I hit was, thank God the worst of my night is over. And uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. So before we talk about the rest of the match, I got to ask, like, you know, you, you've never done a jump like this before, right? Like. Right. I know you've jumped off your house when you were a kid, but I yeah. mean, you've never in the course of a match really jumped from anything like this before, right? Right. So, well, you know, I mean, second turnbuckle and, you know, years before this match, like going back to 91 in WCW, I was saying, I can't jump high, so I jump from high places. Uh, but there's a difference between the four-foot ring apron or even, I guess, seven feet is probably the second turnbuckle. And this is a legit... 16 is it i think I'm there's an sure. alarm going off in our 
an alarm clock, but we're not going to worry about it. You can't hear it, can you? No, we're fine. Hey, so okay. how do you how do you know when to turn in the air? Like I didn't, I did not. <laughs> My goodness, man! I, I I really sold the idea of me flying off there so casually that I think Vincent Undertaker thought, well, he sounds like he knows what he's doing. So clearly, it's not the elbow dropping an elbow. I don't know. I, I don't think I could have done it better uh, a second time. Um, it just, it, you know, it made for an unforgettable moment and probably prevented me from being hurt even worse than I uh, would have been if I had hit the monitors. I mean, the guardrail, the monitor, the concrete, the human beings. I mean, this could have went poorly in a lot of different ways. Oh, sure. Yeah, it really could have. And you know what? There were so many surreal moments that night. One of them is the guardrail and the fact that about a third of my body was underneath the guardrail, like in the among the fans of the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And, uh, you know, today they've got those cool barriers uh, that look much better on TV, but you would have lost that visual of like, he's in the crowd, you know, uh, underneath that debris and the way the table broke, it was covering half my body. Like we were, you know, we were lucky in a lot of say, not half my body, obviously it was covering my head, but you can clearly see that, uh, you know, uh, the lower part of my body was out there in the crowd and it was just a shocking, you know, it was a shock to the, because nobody called that shot, you know. I, you know, from that moment on in big matches, including a couple of my own, you know, you're almost like Babe Bruce calling your, you know, the fabled Babe Bruce calling a shot. Uh, fans have come to expect some big surprises, but nobody saw that coming. And so I had this, like a minute, really to just appreciate what we had done and the shock of the crowd and the feeling that the match was over, but that nobody, nobody was thinking, well, they, you know, they didn't give us our money's worth because they only went, you know, um, 48 seconds. Uh, and I think, you know, and I had no idea that JR had made this legendary call right. uh, uh, that added so greatly to it, you know, by God, he's been broken in half, you know, that it's, you know, it's become such a part of, popular culture but while i lay under that debris i was wondering okay will i i, I told undertaker and, and vince if i can i'm going to roll off i didn't know how i'd be but i i told him if i'm able to i'm going to roll off the gurney and, and climb uh, that structure a second time and while i'm under there i'm thinking i think i, I think i can do it and so it's this yeah, it's this really unique situation where i'm able to appreciate <laughs> what we did even while it's taking place and you feel i can hear the crowd chanting you know undertaker's name with the hockey chant which was rare at the time in 98 uh, it was rare you know you know you get the this is awesome even when matches are just pretty good but you know when they were going undertaker with the you know the clapping and that cell starts you know because we hadn't told anyone involved what was happening the medical people had no idea how to get the gurney down and they end up having to raise the cell structure 
with Undertaker on top of it. So again, it's that uh, surreal. You know, I, I keep using the word surreal, but I'm gonna. I might have to take a brief time out in a few minutes to turn off the alarm clock or something. But as long as you can't hear it, I'll tr I'll try to ignore it. Uh, just like I'm ignoring the blue chew label in the lower right. Uh, <laughs> Hey, nobody's going to ignore that because here's the thing. You hit that table hard. How hard? Harder as Blue Chew can do for you. Come on, bluechew.com. It gives you the unique idea and delivery service to have the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra delivered to your home at a fraction of the cost and in chewable form. You can take these anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is so simple. You sign up at bluechew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversation, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But Blue there's Chew. nothing discreet about your package, Conrad. That's right, Mick. And you and I, when we think of Blue Chew, we like to think of it as like a hot bag for your wiener. Come on now. Blue Chew wants to help you have better sex. Discover your options at bluechew.com. Chew it and do it. And we got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay the $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code Foley receives your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. We thank Blue Chew for sponsoring today's podcast. So listen, in your sit down with Undertaker uh, with the uh, WWE YouTube, uh, he said that the closest thing to an outer body experience he's ever had is seeing you go flying off of the cell. That's uh, got to be, I mean, as crazy of a visual as it would have been from your perspective, the second has to be from his perspective. Yeah. He goes, I hope he's okay. My goodness. What a moment for him too. <laughs> And then that's only exceeded by the second bump in which he wonders if I'm still with us as far as when I say with us, meaning if I'm still alive. Uh, and then I remember a few years back, we did something not nearly of the quality that WWE, you know, this, this YouTube thing is really exceptional, even though I only watched the first six, seven minutes because I wanted to share it with my son. Uh, but the one we did a few years ago was really good too. And Undertaker said, like, it's just really fortunate that he wasn't standing on that panel because if he chokeslammed me uh, and I went through it with him, uh, there's no telling how things would have ended up. But, yeah, uh, he said, I remember saying it. It seemed like I was in the air forever. It's so surreal to even think about that this happened. I mean, this... The more you think about it, the more dangerous it gets. And, you know, Meltzer would even write with undertaker working with bone chips in his ankle that limited his mobility and theoretically would hamper the match. Everyone figured Foley would be there to make it and save it. And that turned out to be correct. Although few knew going in to what links he would go. And, and, and that's what Meltzer wrote. But my takeaway was, and I want to ask you now, if the undertaker wasn't hurt, if he's not coming in here. Uh, with some injuries and that hurt ankle and, and, and really shouldn't be performing. And he's missed some house shows and we've had to postpone some house shows. If none of that was happening, if he was business as usual, you think we wind up seeing you fly off the cage? I don't know. 
I'm nodding my head because I'm thinking yes. And then as I was nodding my head, I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, we were dealing with the hand we were dealt. And so that's what I came up, you know, with that hand in mind. So I'm not sure if that would have been, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really, I, even at 100% health, I can't just have an average match. If right. it was the first ever match, cell match, yeah, uh, because we would have set, you know, the, the, the standard. We may have set the bar a lot lower than Sean and Undertaker set it, but with those guys going first, the bar was raised really high, and I want to at least, like, come, you know, reasonably close to reaching that bar. And so I had to, I, I had to go with the heavy artillery, Conrad. I mean, you know, I was, like I said, uh, dealing with, not to, not to overdo the card playing motif, but <laughs> I was dealing, you know, dealing with a limited genetic hand to start with. And, uh, then the cards we had on the, t <laughs> I, I, let me stop with the card stuff, but that was a situation we had. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we came up with talk to me a little bit about you know when you're leaving on the gurney we know after you've been thrown off the cage you are going to come back you're going to scale the cage again you're you're doing it this time without a mask and, and i think you and undertaker talked about in your youtube special that that sort of humanized you a little bit you're no longer this character now you're the real person that they know because they've seen the interviews from 97 we've seen the other characters but i'm wondering from your perspective and I realize I'm asking this and I know what's still to come. Do you think at that point you, you had a concussion from the bump off the top or was it the second one that did it? I, I think it was the second one. I mean, so, we've learned a lot more about concussions at that time. I didn't know that just, you know, like bone jarring bumps could rattle your brain. Um, the table did break my fall to some extent. And like I said, because there were two big bumps, I can't tell which one did the most damage, but I was really hurting for about six weeks. And with all the injuries I had, I never even had the, like the internal part checked out, but there was definitely some, you know, some blood in the urine for a few days and real tenderness around uh, either the kidney or liver. I'll have to do a little anatomy check to see which part of me was hurting. I should know that. Um, but it was one of the two organs that were, you know, probably injured and really affected me. Al Snow was my roommate that night and, uh, and I didn't get back for about four hours because I went to the emergency room, but Al said it was a tough night for me. You know, it was really, even in my sleep, I was, I guess, making some noises. Like it was really a tough tough night for me. So they get Vince McMahon, a sort of break character. He's going to come out. Terry Funk's out the stretchers there. You're climbing back up the cage. Of course, the plan, as you said, was, Hey, we're going to try to do this choke slam. You come all the way through. I mean, we've talked about some of the crazy bumps you've taken. <laughs> you even talked about how you hoped when Vader sort of jumped backwards and squished you with you on his back on the ramp that maybe you can cash in on your Lords of London and damn it. I still feel my extremities. That's not going to work. 
Ah, that was going to be the last move, my last match of my career. If things had gone like at the time, like I hoped they would, I'm glad they didn't. Um, but I have to tell you, when I rolled off that gurney, and this is a big credit to the WWE production team because they captured that emotion. So they got my expression. I start climbing that thing. They showed Undertaker. Uh, his expression when he started climbing and that I'm getting goose all right now I swear to you I'm getting that that whole hot flash thing in my skull scalp uh, Man, it was just such a electrically charged atmosphere because uh, It's really it's really coming. <laughs> it's really coming in now 25 years later. I get emotional talking about it and uh, You know, I said this during the it's an exaggeration, but I said during my special five years ago, if you could have bottled that energy at the source, you could have lit up the city of Pittsburgh for a week. And my big regret was that I didn't have the steam I needed to really exchange with Undertaker once we got up there. I think because I was anticipating the bump in addition to, you know, having a lot of life taking me out of out of me with that bump, but that's my one regret is that if I'd gone up there and we'd really gotten into that big exchange, that crowd, that energy level would have risen even higher. But, uh, you know, I'll take what we got. We did uh, pretty well. So talk to me a little bit about um, that bump. I mean, this bump, when you come through the cage, this has got to be at this point, the most devastating bump of your career, you're totally out of it. You said at the top of the show, you missed the 42 seconds as taker comes down. You can see, boy, he's hurting, uh, just yeah. landing on that ankle. Mm-hmm. Terry's there to help buy time. I think they have a conversation like, uh, let's see if he's still alive. Yeah, that was the, I didn't know the words that were spoken. Um, and I watched that when I went home out of the goodness of his heart, being the humanitarian he is, after I did wrestle the next night in a, you know, it was only about a 20 second match where Steve hit me with a chair and took perfect care of me, by the way, that Vince sent me home for four days. And I probably watched the match and parts of it 25 times. And I was aware that Undertaker and Terry had exchanged words, but I just, I never, I never wondered what they were because they were just said so casually. And it wasn't until uh, Terry inducted me into the Hall of Fame in 2013 that he revealed it. And I'm standing behind that curtain ready to come out. When he revealed it, I got the, I, I, the you know, the jolt of electricity all the way down my body, but only on the right side of my body, all the way down to my toes. I have no idea why, just one side of my body. And when he revealed it, he said, the undertaker looked at him and said, see if he's alive. (laughs) So (laughs) what I thought was Terry haphazardly, like placing his hand on my face was actually Terry taking my pulse. So when he turned around, he said to the undertaker, he's still breathing. And that's when uh, Terry went up for that choke slam. And in the process, uh, his shoes came off his feet and I had no idea. I mean, I slowly turned over my stomach. That was about all I could do during that time period. You can see one of the shoes is off, and I think the other one's halfway off. Uh, and again, if this was the present day, that match would be stopped, and that would yeah. be the right move and the correct move. And I'm so grateful that we've learned more and that we uh, 
we do that for the men and women when they're injured. But in this case, you know, we are just trying to buy time on live TV to uh, get to the finish line. So that's, I keep coming back to the idea that we didn't get there the way we planned and hoped, but by God, we got there. And in the process, we really walked our way into the pages of wrestling history. And I don't think that's an exaggeration, you know, that because of, you know, I mean, that, that did go wrong. You know, the cell that I thought was going to gradually tear just ching in a second gave way completely and changed the whole uh, state of that match. But because of that, in real time, you had these three human beings, me, Terry, the Undertaker, trying to piece this match together. And it's pretty, I mean, it's still, it's still really, it hits hard when you watch the match in its entirety. We all we all watch the clips, and you know we're used to any time a World Cup game is three to nothing. Yeah, a meme come up where someone says somebody stopped the damn match, and when somebody wipes out on a skateboard, there's a meme that says, "With God as my witness, he's been broken in half." Uh, but in its entirety, it's still a really emotional ride. Um, and that's one of the things that I came to appreciate about it because I, I resented the match for years to follow. You know, it was a long journey for me to accept it and, to, you know, appreciate it and come to love it. Why did you resent it? You know, because it, it just overshadowed everything else I did. And it was the only thing people wanted to talk to me about. And Undertaker mentions that during the, uh, you know, the, the sit down, he says, it's just, you get asked about it so much. You can only answer the same question so many times. <laughs> he said, you know, you start making up stuff and really my route to uh, appreciating it, my journey, if you will, was, uh, it was, uh, it was in part when Undertaker came to my event in Austin, Texas, I think it was 2013. And, you know, he and Michelle came into the, uh, you know, my little green room area and he goes, you know, we started reminiscing and he goes, you know, Jack, what you and I did, he still called me Jack. He, I think he calls me Mick these days, but I liked it. I was still Jack because I met him as Cactus Jack. Uh, he was not mean Mark to me though. So uh, I was Cactus Jack, but he was the undertaker. Uh, he goes, what you and I did that night will outlive us both. And then I, he, I guess he saw the look in my eye, the look in my eyes, and he goes, "What you and I did, people will be talking about what you and I did long after both of us are gone." And I got again. I mean, as I talk about it again, that same thing. And I remember driving back to my hotel, feeling like a weight was off my shoulders, like uh, he'd put it and framed it in such a way that I realized this was something. To fifteen years after the fact. It's uh, something to really be proud of and appreciate because there were times when, I mean, a couple of occasions, at least one specific occasion when I was doing morning radio, I'm a terrible sleeper, always had trouble sleeping. And so uh, my alarm clock would be the call from the radio station. So they'd get me at 6 a.m. with two hours sleep. And I remember yelling one time, 
going, you know, I had other matches that I'm proud of where I wasn't knocked out. Maybe you could ask me about one of those. But we don't get to choose <laughs> what touches other people. And uh, so I, I have come to appreciate it. Part of it was part of it was watching uh, was what Undertaker said. And part of it was when my wife said to me, the children want to see that match. This is Mickey and Huey. And I think they were only like five and seven at the time. And I was like, are you sure they should see that? So kids at school are talking about it. And I hadn't seen it in its entirety for, I, I could do the math later on, but probably in 10 years. And I just, the clips, you know, and been asked about the, the two bumps, especially the first one. So many times it becomes like, there's an episode of uh, the Flintstones where Fred becomes like management and he just says the same three things. What's your line? I don't know if you're, he's just on like autopilot. And that's the way I felt for so many years, especially in the era of the, you know, the WWE appearances uh, where it's two hours max. There's always a big line because they promote the heck out of their things. They never want to put any of their talent from the bottom to the top in a position where, you know, there's an empty, you know, the Virgil photo. And, uh, you know, in fairness to Virgil, anyone who does a Comic-Con is going to have that moment, you know, because you're sometimes at a con for 20 hours over the course of three days. So WWE, two hours, boom. The, 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 the uh, average time of the interaction is about five seconds. So it's not the type of place where you're going to have deep conversations. And literally, you know, I would be saying over, oh, it's a tough day at the office. You know, wouldn't want to go through that again. And you're just answering it the same way over and over and over. But when I watched the match with my children, that's when I realized, man, this is this packs a wallop. And it, it still does. It's, it really still does. Even though, and the crazy thing is, there's not the crazy, and one of the interesting things is people have done things very nearly as you know, dangerous. I mean, I remember Kevin Owens going off the top of the cage through a table. And it's, I think because of social media, um, even the greatest things today are quickly forgotten. You know, they're like digested, spit out, and we're on to the next thing. It, it reminds me of like the revolving sushi conveyor belts, you know, where you, you're just so busy grabbing whatever you want and, and taking it that you don't really have a chance in a lot of occasions to really fully appreciate, you know, the ingredients and finer qualities of like one little slice of the wrestling pie. And I think uh, you can do that back in that day when the momentum was able to gradually, um, when we were able to gradually gain more momentum, like a snowball rolling downhill. I don't think you get that today. And I think if The Undertaker and I had done that match in the present day, it probably would have been talked about for three days, maybe a week max, and then we'd be on to the next thing. So I'm fortunate that this was something that was able to gather momentum over time uh where it became bigger and bigger and i i mentioned uh, this to someone who showed me their actual ticket uh i was doing a signing in pittsburgh yesterday to commemorate the event and i've got a, a big sold out show in burlington vermont in two days on the day of the 25th anniversary but there were people who had the chairs and ticket stubs 
and and that's the you know like uh, that's how you prove you were there because I probably talked to more people who claimed they were there than could have physically fit into the civic arena, right? And they're not lying; they're remembering history the way they wish it had unfolded, with them being a witness to it. Man, I think Meltzer knew back then. He wrote in the Observer recap. Here's how he started the Observer. Mick Foley has long established himself as one of the greats in the pro wrestling industry. And over the last year, probably solidified whatever doubts there would be as him being remembered when his career is over as being a Hall of Fame caliber wrestling legend. But whatever he has done and whatever he will ever do within pro wrestling, he will always be remembered for June 28th, 1998, and the match that will be never forgotten against The Undertaker in the Hell in a Cell from Pittsburgh. He knew way back then. Did you think this was just a spectacular thing at the time or, or did you, I mean, you said you grew to resent it, but like, did you know, this is something that I could never top. Did you know that right away? Well, I remember reading that, you know, um, and thinking, wow, I think Dave's kind of overstating that. Um, I, and you, because it didn't feel that big at the time, Shawn Michaels was a guest on WWE. I think he'd been out of action for a while. Maybe this is after he retired. And yeah, uh, he left um, WrestleMania in 98, right? So this is a few yeah. months after Mania. It was his first time back on TV. He talked about it on the show and he came back and he pointed at a monitor and said, well, I figure if those guys weren't going to mention it, at least I would. Because it wasn't in the cold open. It wasn't something that was going to lead to another interaction with me and The Undertaker. So it just seemed like it was forgotten, you know, like, uh, can you imagine it wasn't in the open? It wasn't discussed on the show one day later, even though during the course of the day, the undertaker, he could not have taken better care of me. He really did. He was making sure I was fed and hydrated. And we watched that match together in catering. And it was certainly the first time I won't say it was the only time it was the first time I remember like a standing ovation in catering. And I was, I was kind of out of it, you know, I mean, I'd had the concussion and I did not documented because I, um, I had so many other issues, including the teeth, uh, and the stitches under the lip, uh, that, uh, I don't think it was documented at least, but, uh, I was, I was out of it. And, uh, but I remember thinking, wow, that, and honestly, this, you know, I, I had a pain, you know, I had a, a pain reliever in me, which was very rare for me. Uh, so I was, and so when you don't take medication very often, it hits you pretty hard. So I was a little woozy anyway, um, that following day. Uh, but I remember thinking this is really, this is really cool. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's something we'll never see again. And, and at the time there was even a debate. And I want to get your opinion about it. I know you talked about it on YouTube with the undertaker, the thumbtacks. Yeah. I would say the thumbtacks after all that had happened were apparently thought to be necessary because after what mankind had already gotten up from up from what excuse could logically be given to keep them down, but they were also overkill and not only didn't add to the drama, but it ended the drama one minute prematurely with the feeling of not watching a courageous performance on a major league stage but watching a sick minor league barroom geek show. So nah, really I, I that because that was the first time they'd been used in North America. 
Yes. And when you see them come out, and I, you know, I ask anyone to go back and watch, it was a heck of a reaction because nobody had seen. David seen it a lot because David watched the stuff from uh, FMW and IWA. Uh, but it, I believe it was the first time, if not the first time in North America, certainly the first time in WWE. And I thought that it, yeah, I thought it was effective. I mean, the first time when Undertaker chokeslam me, uh, or I can't remember the bump I took, but I didn't think that I landed in enough of them. So that's where the ad lib was, the call was, <laughs> the uh, audible was made to take the choke slam in them before the uh, the tombstone. So no, I, I disagree with that. Uh, I know you and Taker talked about it, and I, as I understand it, he's uh, thinking after the big bump through the cage. Hey man, let's go home, please. Let's go home. And you yeah. said we got to get to the tax. I find <laughs> it interesting that after you've done both of these spectacular things, you still, no, no, no one more. I mean, you're concussed. You're hurting for certain. Oh, I got to get the tax. In. Why were the tax so important to you? I think it was, it was finishing the match. That was important to me. And I asked undertaker, I don't know if we discussed this on a previous program where I went to the UK because uh, he was doing, you know, like Night of the Taker or something, and WWE didn't want him. They weren't, I don't think they were ready for him to be Mark Calloway yet and do that kind of open discuss, panel discussion with uh, between the ropes. Um, and so I, I remember being called and asked, like, would you come here? Like, we're going to, the poor guy was like, we're, <laughs> this whole door is going to be, decimated so i came into the talking and then undertaker you know did this did the signing and i asked him then because i never asked before i said what did i say that made you think that i could continue he said you just kept saying i'm okay i'm okay i'm okay i'm okay i kept getting okay in there like every third attempt and i think back on it because when he said go home first of all as the undertaker and what he says in the ring is usually not open to negotiation, you know, I don't know why I felt like we should put in more time than that. But on that one night, I mean, this is not an overstatement to say there was something in the air, honestly, and I'm getting the tingling again, that made me tougher and stronger and braver than I'd ever been before. And I'll argue than I ever was again. So, uh, you know, any other night, I probably would have gratefully agreed to go home and on that night i thought i had i thought i had more left in the tank not only did you have more left in the tank to do the thumbtacks i think people forget about this this was not the main event no nope. that was the first blood match with steve austin and kane and you're going to come down and interfere in that one what in the world <laughs> How are they letting you do this? this is another surreal aspect you know like i just keep using that word because how I managed to convince the people involved that I was able to come back uh, is beyond me. <laughs> and when I came out, this is <laughs> funny things is like, I'm coming out to interfere in a match that changes the course of wrestling history because it allows Kane to capture the WWE title. And he'll even say to this day, yeah, thanks a lot, Mick, because of you, no one remembers the fact I won the title. <laughs> And so because by virtue of the fact that I'm 
changing the course of wrestling history with a dastardly heel move. I should have some heat for the audience. And instead, the feeling was like, for the love of God, like, haven't you? <laughs> Maybe you had enough for one night. But I got out there and that was, I think, after I comforted Pat Patterson, who I just found out after the match had lost his long you know, partner of 30 years. Uh, mm. I went into Vince's office. I'd been told that Louie had passed away for 20 years. I thought I killed Louie. And when I finally brought up the Patty was, I said, Pat, something I've been wanting to know. And he, yeah, I said, did I kill Louie? And he laughed. He goes, God damn it. No, Louie died three hours before the show began. I said, I didn't kill him. He goes, hell no. So, um, I, you know, I, I like a lot of, a lot of, like almost everybody who knew him, I really thought the world of Pat. I remember going in, just giving him a big hug. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this young lady in the, you know, in the corner of the room. And she said, I, you know, she said, I still had the tooth in my nose. That's probably arguable. But she said, I gave her this little crooked smile. And she was thinking, <laughs> This guy's been through a lot, you know, and that was my first time meeting Stephanie McMahon, which was pretty historic. And then I, you know, for whatever reason on that night, felt like I could go out there and be part of that, the slowest, most ridiculous, like ridiculous in a positive sense, run in in wrestling history. Well, let's talk about the match one more time briefly. It's a tombstone and that's the finish. Throwing you off the cage, didn't do it. Choke slamming you through the cage, didn't do it. Doing the choke slams in the in the attacks, didn't do it. But a tombstone, that's enough. Looking back on all this, all these years later, you like, see the leg there, Conrad. Yes. Remember that I I actually like kicked my leg on the three count, showing there was still just a tiny bit of life left in me. I mean. Are you just thankful this is over? Hey, we made it. I finished. I am. Something happened to my screen. That's just my screen, right? You guys can still see me? Yes, sir. Okay. How, how did your family handle this? Are they watching at home on pay-per-view? Yeah. Um, look, that wasn't my, it should have been my first thought, but uh, again, I was out of it. And if you have to have an excuse why you didn't, call your wife being knocked unconscious is probably a good one. And it wasn't until uh, it couldn't have been at the hospital. I mean, and I can't remember if I was brought back to the arena after the emergency room, or if it was just after the fact, like an hour later when Dave Hebner goes, brother, you need to call your wife. She's really upset. This is in the days before, you know, the texting and all that. So I don't know how she got through to WWE, but I called her up and she was, she was yelling at me. You can't do this to us. The children thought you were dead. And she puts me on the phone with Noel. <laughs> you know, so it's past midnight. Noel in 98 is five years old. And she was the first, but not the last, to ask the question, did it hurt? <laughs> My goodness. I got yelled at. And uh, it really it changed a, a, my own perception of myself as being someone who could take anything to somebody who realized, you know, I'm kind of on borrowed time here. And I think that match 
had a large part to do with like the turn that mankind character went through, like the evolution where it became such a warm and friendly character. Like I was kind of embarrassed when you watch Beyond the Mat, for example, you can see I wasn't comfortable with the warm, cuddly mankind. It was only years later where I realized like what an effect that version of the mankind character had, especially with people who didn't feel like they fit in. Uh, but mankind in 98, June 98 was still a pretty badass character. Uh, and it didn't really have the humor that dude had injected into, you know, the three faces of folly. Uh, but I'm grateful because in searching for a way to keep, you know, the character and really when I'm talking about the character, I'm talking about myself relevant. I found a way to connect with people that I didn't even realize until years, years later. It's uh, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, here we are 25 years later. I know it's probably tough, but I want to talk briefly about your injuries because Meltzer wrote a lot about it. And he says that the reports after the match we received on his medical condition is that he dislocated his jaw and had three teeth dislodged on the first bump. Luckily, the teeth were all cleanly dislodged, so they were able to be reinserted later that evening. The jaw was put back in place by Francois. One of the teeth somehow wound up in his nose. He needed stitches in his mouth from a cut when an errant tooth cut through the uh, lip and he was taken from the building to the show uh, or from the show to the hospital. Um, but not before coming back, uh, talking about the run in, tell me about what you did to sort of stitch yourself up and put Humpty Dumpty back together again <laughs> at the building. And then what happens at the hospital? Well, the teeth were actually dislodged with the bump through the cell. If you go back and watch it in slow-mo, you can see that the chair that I'd had the wisdom and foresight to bring up on top with me, right? like followed me down and hit me in the face, so in the mouth. So that's what caused the teeth to be dislodged. And even now, I mean, if you look closely, and I'll get you guys a good close-up once you get off that uh, photo there, uh, you can see that there's uh, two missing uh, or put back in and then the teeth on each side uh, are in bad need of replacement. So 25 years after the fact, I'll have to have four teeth uh, replaced uh, plus three on top. So we're looking at seven teeth. This is a pretty major job for Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, to uh, contemplate. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, what Meltzer wrote here with, with his lasting impression. But before we do, was there anything else that needed to be done in the backstage area before you went to the hospital and what happened at the hospital? Did Francois pop the jaw back in? Yeah, he said he did. I mean, I didn't see it on the video, but he said he did. And my shoulder was actually injured as well. And then, like I said, the, uh, kidney or liver, but I never had them checked out. So I couldn't tell you and my uh, lack of knowledge complete knowledge of human anatomy doesn't let me tell you I could point to which one it was and I will check an anatomical chart to see which one was injured and that's the one that hurt me the longest uh, but it was also I mean I can say this having been in a pretty bad car accident in late 89 that it felt like I'd been in a car accident you know just that that long-term achiness and uh, 
and then psychologically, the idea of understanding that you are not impervious to anything, to everything, and that uh, I had a family, and at that time, like we were talking about, the house shows were doing well, and I was like, I have a couple good years left in me if I can make it, and this is where I have to make a decision with that character, and the decision I made was to start um, putting a little more humor into the portrayal. What was the uh, reaction from the rest of the locker room? What did, what did Taker and Austin and Jr and Vince and everybody think of this? Well, you know, I'm going back. I was, you know, in a pretty tough way. And, uh, you know, I, I was able to you know, go in and see Pat and meet Stephanie McMahon for the first time I had the run in to do. So I don't remember the reaction that night. What I do remember is the reaction, uh, in catering. And like I said, it was the first time, uh, and, uh, and you know, there may have been other times, but that was the first time I recall anyone getting a standing ovation from catering. Usually, you know, people are multitasking, you know, they don't really watch what's going on. They just kind of replay the, uh, the event. And if you were in the match, you were in the show, you kind of watch it with your opponent. And uh, sometimes it's the last time you'll be working with that person and you share that moment and then you're off to like, another feud with someone else, another program. And so in a weird way, even though he's your opponent the night before, he's also your partner, but following that, that moment you share together, watching the match, you do become opposition because you're competing for the, the top spots. So, um, I don't remember that much about that night. I mean, I, I you know, I, I drew out what happened with Dave Hebner telling me to call my wife my wife yelling at me going to the hospital coming back al snow being there to help me out undertaker taking great care of me during the next day uh but i you know i had other i don't remember the reaction of the men and women there i remember remember mark henry talking about it on a video and uh, he shared uh, he said that the guys men and women backstage had the same feeling undertaker did like I don't know if he's alive. And then they saw me move and there was a, you know, a sigh of relief. And then we, you know, like I said, we limped our way into the pages of wrestling history. Let's, uh, let's start to wind this down. Now, I got to ask, I don't want you to give me the number, but were you pleased with your payday? Do you remember? Yeah. Oh yeah. I shouldn't have, uh, <laughs> showed my, I shouldn't have tipped my hat as to how happy I was, but I remember texting Vince when I got to payday and it was well above and beyond what I'd ever received before. And certainly what I expected and texting him and thanking him and showing up, telling him that I just appreciate what he did. Another thing I appreciate, and I've talked about this before, but I think it bears restating is that Vince walked into the dressing room when it was all said and done. And he said, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you've just done to this company, but I never want to see anything like that again. And then he told me he was going to place a governor on me. I didn't know what a governor was. It's a device that prevents a car from going too fast. So it won't do, you know, it'll prevent further damage. And that's what he was placing on me. And eventually, you know, we, I'd go on to do some wild stuff, but for a while, yeah, I was like on double secret probation when it came to the wild stuff. 
let me ask you this. This is a great question that we got because we did a uh, search for questions on social. Uh, do you, this is from SM champ. Do you feel that a program with undertaker could have continued further instead of the undertaker moving on to Austin for summer? I always felt felt there was no huge follow-up for what might've been one of the greatest moments in wrestling. I guess it would be hard to top hell in a cell. That's a logical question. Was yeah. there ever any consideration given to that? Were you disappointed it didn't continue? No, I was really grateful for that opportunity. Like I said, I didn't feel like I deserved it. And we certainly made the most of it by virtue of the fact we're talking about it 25 years later. And I kind of, I, I don't want to, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, but are there anniversaries of matches like this one? No. Where people remember where they were? I'm guessing there are a few WrestleManias where people can remember the exact time and date, but this is pretty special in that way. And when it comes to Undertaker and Steve, you have to remember Steve was, <laughs> he was you know, that's the guy, right? So, and that, uh, and that match with Undertaker and Steve did a tremendous buy rate and was, I mean, it had the highway to hack as we still call it in the Foley family. Um, and they had the great poster. I mean, it was one of the best pay-per-view posters I've ever seen. And they had a great match. And that's where you want to be. You know, there's, you know, continuing that feud with, like I said, which we'd had for a, almost a full year. So I six or seven pay-per-views, I think 10, like I said, 10 TV matches. I'd say, I'm just estimating 100 house shows. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I was grateful for it, and I, I did go through those years where I resented it, um, and then uh, you know it took me, I guess, if 2013 when the Undertaker, uh, uh, you know, told me that what he and I, what we had done, would outlive us both. Uh, it took me 15 years to really appreciate it, and uh, and now I'm so proud of the fact that what I'm. What I'm really proud of is that 50% of people who ask me about the match weren't even born when it happened. And so it has been something that families have passed down, you know, through the generations. And when I did the 20 Years of Hell show, I, I wanted to be able to conclude in a, you know, in a special way. And about three days before the uh, the big finale in Pittsburgh, I kind of figure out what I wanted to say is that this was, it served as an example for everyone who'd ever gone above and beyond to finish a match. And, you know, I talked about Leon White, you know, with uh, Stan Hansen finishing a match after his eyeball had popped out. I talked about uh, Manami Toyota, I believe, cradling her own head so she could finish a match with a broken neck. And then I talked uh, about a, a young woman who had a match with Daphne, uh, Vicky Lyons, I think her name was. And uh, she had been on uh, Forensic Files. And this, you know, this woman who'd been run over in a parking lot by a truck and was thought never to walk or talk again went on to have one match after six years of training. And the thing about it was I got really emotional when I did that. And once I did in Pittsburgh, I was like, I can't go to that well again. It's too heavy for me. Uh, but in expressing it for those three or four nights, 
I, I think I hit on why it's so special to me because it does serve as an example for everyone who's ever gone above and beyond in our business to, you know, to finish a show or to do, go, you know, or to give the fans the best, best match possible under difficult circumstances. I don't think there's many better examples. I mean, my goodness, what a sacrifice. And, uh, Matt has a great question about that. He says, Mick, how much do you, how much time do you think this took off of your career? Did this match speed up your retirement? Well, it definitely altered my career in that I had to search for a way to connect with people that did not involve, uh, the everyday, you know, uh, shock and awe of what I, you know, what I did. And I thought it was like the coward's way out. But then, like I said, over the course of time, I realized how much the, the warmer, kinder, gentler mankind resonated with people. But yeah, I mean, the head, you know, the head injuries definitely shorten my career. I mean, that's why I, you know, I, 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 uh, called it a day at the peak of my popularity. So I probably cost myself, you know, the, a couple of great earning years. Um, and, uh, I'm, you know, I was really struggling you know, I mean, I was really feeling the effects of the bumps over all those years. And then that kind of began a domino effect of eating to anesthetize the pain. That was my way of dealing with it. Putting on the extra weight that made it so difficult on my knees, then still trying to give people what I thought a McFoley match should be, which meant taking headshots and doing more dangerous things. And I think all of these things combined, uh, you know, shortened my career by at least a year. But I, uh, I was able to, I mean, I'm lucky that I got out when I did. I remember when I had that meeting with Vince in October of uh, 99 and told him I thought I had to retire. And he, so he asked me why. I said, Vince, I said, when I play ball with my kids like unless the ball's kicked or thrown directly to me I, I have no lateral movement even make you need to take some of that weight off and i said Vince, i can't even remember where i live anymore like i would uh realize that you know i had passed my house 20 minutes earlier and as soon as he heard that he said you just had your last match and if it hadn't been for steve austin getting hurt hurting his neck i wouldn't have had those big matches with uh hunter to close out my career I would have, uh, you know, had that last match uh, with Al Snow and I as tag team champions, and that would have been my swan song. So, yeah, I think it did shorten my career, but it was also the, the way that I chose to deal with the pain, which wasn't the healthiest, which was late night, uh, you know, late night snacks. Uh, you know, I always said, and I think I talked about this uh, during the Matt Bourne episode of Beyond, um, dark side of the ring where I said, you know, the road will exacerbate your weaknesses, you know, to really amplify them. And whereas for some people, the weaknesses are alcohol or women or drugs. For me, it was, man, yeah, it was, you know, it was the bad stuff. That's the thing eating, you know, and 
So my one, I mean, I've got some regrets, uh, but one of my biggest regrets was that when I finally got over, over, and I was about 280, uh, fans would have accepted me at any weight, and I should have gone down 30 pounds and wrestled 250. And instead, I went up 30 pounds and was around 310, 318, you know, during the Rock and Sock Connection things. And I think that really, uh, that was where I started having a real bad structural problem. So I remember Hunter, uh, Triple H, talking about uh, a conversation he had with a, a friend or a co-worker or a fan. or somebody who said, hey, Mick Foley's body must be falling apart. And Hunter was like, oh, he gets around pretty good. Keep in mind that I didn't wear knee pads for most of my time in WWE. I mean, I did for the first several months I was Mankind, and I did a lot of stuff outside the ring, dropping out of my knees. Not like the earth-shaking stuff, and uh, but things that were creating little tiny cracks in the kneecaps so that by the time I was 34, I was shot. I went from Hunter saying, you know, one year that I was doing pretty good to the next year being barely able to climb up a flight of stairs and having uh, orthopedic people marvel at a guy at 34 had knees of an 80-year-old person. So um, that's a long-winded response. Uh, but yeah, I think it led to, you know, it led to the shortening of my career. But at the same time, it lengthened the, you know, my status. You know, it created this moment to where the reason, part of the reason we're doing this show Part of the reason I'm able to go out on the road and part of the reason I'm, I'm, you know, able to go to conventions is because we were able to create this, uh, you know, maybe a few indelible moments, but this was the biggest of all of them. So uh, I would have done some things differently if I had to do them over again, but I'm not, I'm not complaining about the hand I was dealt. Well, let me ask you that. Is there anything about this match you would change? I mean, I know that sounds silly, but is there anything you wish would have done differently? <laughs> Yeah, I would have. I would. Have, I wish we could have had the exchange up on top of the cell, and uh, even though the, uh, even though uh, the collapse of the cell panel did add to the drama, if I'd known that it was being put together with twist ties, I certainly would have had a word with the people in charge. <laughs> it's like there was no way I was expecting that that to happen. Well, I want to ask too, like if you think. Just hypothetically, if you come into this match, not as the mankind character, but as dude love or cactus Jack, does that change anything? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Well, maybe cactus, I mean, dude wouldn't have been in there. He wouldn't have been over enough. Well, you know, I'm saying that coming off two big dude matches with uh, Steve, but that was evil corporate dude, which was a completely different animal. Not to be confused with, uh, the cheesy, uh, lounge singing dude love who appears on cameo videos and does a darn good. I love dude more now than I ever did when I was actually him. Uh, but I don't know. I, uh, I know I, 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 as a person would have felt that any character who was in that, uh, type of match would have to uh, come up in a big way. We, uh, we got a recap with, uh, one last Meltzer write up, then we'll put a bow on this one. But my last impression of the undertaker mankind match was that as long as I live, I can say with certainty that I will never forget the performance. And there isn't a lot about wrestling that I'd make that statement about 
Mick Foley will be linked with the hell in a cell more than Shawn Michaels will ever be linked with the ladder match. Just as Brett will never escape the link of the most disastrous night of his career, no matter what he did beforehand and what he'll end up doing for the rest of his career and whether it wins match of the year or it doesn't. And in some ways it probably shouldn't. And in others, how can you even argue against it because of the impression it created when it was over, it was the greatest match ever that left me sad when it was over. Really wish I had never seen it. Not because it wasn't entertaining, that it wasn't a great match. It was both. Meltzer was uh, worried about his friend, Mick Foley here. He gave the match four and a half stars. Thought it was, it had to be in every conversation for match of the year. Wrestling we hear is about creating moments. This is perhaps one of the most significant moments in wrestling history. But did you think at the time, man, maybe, maybe I went too far. Well, I, you know, I did, I did read, it's funny because, you know, you and I have discussed it. Like when we did the episode on dude love, where I said, I didn't, I stopped reading the observer when I realized it was affecting my days off with my family. Right. So I stopped. I don't know how I happened to read that one, but I definitely read it. And I remember thinking, no, it's, it's not, it wasn't that big a deal because it wasn't treated like it was in the immediate aftermath. And I'm not picking on Sable because she was super over and really deserving of being in the Hall of Fame. Um, but I did an appearance in Fall or Falls River, Massachusetts, about two or three days after, whatever that weekend, the next weekend. So I guess probably six days afterwards. And she had about three, four times the line that I did. So I didn't think, I thought it was. You know, like I said, the digested and forgotten, digested, spit out and forgotten. And uh, instead, I think in part because there was no social media, it was allowed to grow in stature as time went by. And trust me, I was I was part of some main events after that cell match. And there was no feeling that I got. And I was pretty realistic about reactions and where I stood and where the popularity of, you know, the characters were. And I felt like that mankind character was flat, that, uh, it wasn't over. I wasn't, you know, I, 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 I knew when things were working and when they weren't, I didn't get the feeling in the aftermath that that match had meant anything. And I'm glad that I was wrong. And I think, you know, looking back on it, Nobody knew that it was going to serve as that example of going above and beyond. Uh, but 25 years later, that's my takeaway, that it's the match of choice for, not, for fans to show their non-fan friends. And I only watched, like I said, five minutes of the Undertaker special because I wanted to share it with my son. But that was one thing I saw was like, that's the match that people line up when they think when they, they line up for their non-wrestling fan friends. Yeah. And afterwards, they may not be fans, but we have completely changed their perception of what they thought they knew about wrestling. Well, I'll tell you what, you can think, you know, it all, but there's still more to hear. And Mick Foley is coming to a town near you go right now to real <laughs> Of course, uh, as we're recording this Wednesday, you have a sold out show in Vermont uh, in celebration in conjunction with the anniversary, but July is going to be busy for you, my man. You're going to New Hampshire. You're going to Maine. You're going to Massachusetts. You're going to North Carolina. 
And then of course, in August, you're going to be in uh, New York and New Jersey in September. You've got dates booked in Washington and Oregon. See Mick when he comes to your town at realmickfoley.com. And of course, if he's not on the calendar to visit you, well, he can do that virtually on cameo. That's cameo.com slash Mick Foley. And, uh, Mick, I don't know what I expected today, but you, as always exceeded my expectations. I'm glad we got to revisit maybe the most iconic match, not only in your career, but WWE history. <laughs> hey, can I just give you a little, uh, background <laughs> last night? I was thinking to myself, you know, <laughs> how am I ever going to get through that match? What I was thinking was, how am I going to ever, how am I ever going to get through this podcast? Because when I got in last night, I had literally driven 16 hours, oh. uh, flown two hours, waited in an airport for four hours and done a four hour signing. And I was able to get back so that I could take my son Mickey to work. Uh, and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, how am I going to make it through this next day? Because it was, you know, 5.30 a.m. and I had to be up at uh, 8 and my mom woke me up at 7. <laughs> so I was like, how am I going to get through this day? But uh, we got through it and uh, I had a lot of fun talking about it, Conrad. And I hope uh, people uh, appreciate it. Should we mention that we're going monthly from this point on? Yeah, we are going to uh, be switching our format around here on uh, Folius Pod. Uh, we're still going to be in your uh, in your feed every week uh, here for the next little bit, of putting together some special compilations and best ofs, if you will. But you can still plan on Folius Pod. We're not going anywhere. Uh, we're just going to uh, get together once a month. We're going to endeavor to do those in studio and get yeah, that second yeah. great Foley experience. But in the meantime, man, we're playing all the hits over on our YouTube. So if you haven't already, check out our YouTube. It's the perfect way to introduce the Foley fan in your life to Foley's pod. It's Foley on YouTube.com. New content coming there each and every month. Mick, I had a blast today, and I hope you get some well-deserved rest and uh, celebrate your, your anniversary. You deserve the time off, my man. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Looking forward to it right here on Foley is Pod. Hey guys, it's the hardcore legend Mick Foley here, and I need to call a quick timeout, a brief timeout, because I wanted to tell your listeners what I have been telling Foley is Pod listeners for a while now about all the cool things happening over on adfreeshows.com. David Crockett and Conrad go day by day through June of 1985 in Jim Crockett Promotions on the latest episode of The Book the month that the grandson of a plumber arrived june 30th cody rhodes is going to be born i mean his dad wow. is, is is wrestling with tully blanchard in los angeles and dusty's got to hurry home and rush out of there and get home to charlotte to see his wife michelle give birth to the american nightmare it's a special day in jim crockett promotions history Jake the Snake Roberts chatted live with Ad Free Shows members about his Hall of Fame career and a story about Ron Garvin you won't soon forget. You know, everybody's got a tell, you know, so you know if they do that, then here, here comes his comeback. You know what Ronnie Garvin's tail was? His nipples would get harder. <laughs> <laughs>
I swear to God, man. His nipples would get rock hard. When his nipples got rock hard, man, he was coming to his feet and he's going to beat your ass. Just a small taste, a sampling, if you will, of what we have waiting for you with four levels to choose from. Four. See for yourself why ad-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now, right now, at adfreeshows.com. Yeah.